Our sermon this morning is on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, uh, based out of Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. So turn there uh, in your Bibles. We're going to take a look at a few verses and just consider together what they mean and how they apply to our lives. This is kind of the culmination of a big, uh, you know, of, of the, a substantial portion of the, of the Gospel of Luke. Chapters 9 through 19 have all chronicled Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, that's the, the lion's share of the book itself is devoted to this trip. Uh, the, nation, the, the city of Jerusalem is kind of the uh, epicenter of life in the nation of Israel. It's where uh, all of, you know, the majority of commerce happens, uh, law, religious practice, things like that. And Jesus is closing in on the city of Jerusalem during the Passover season, which is one of the biggest, uh, you know, seasons of, of the year. People would travel from all over the nation of Israel to come and to celebrate the Passover and to remember what the Passover represents, which is uh, God saving his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them out, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them out of slavery, uh, and, and bringing them into the promised land. And so Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem in that season. Uh, we get a little more, um, a little more insight into the specific timing of this event in the Gospel of John, um, where it says that we're actually a week, uh, a week before Passover. And so this is what what uh, you know theologians in church history has kind of called the Passion Week, uh, the, the week between you know. Palm Sunday and, and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, as it were. And so this text is essentially dealing with Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem uh, in advance of his ministry in Jerusalem, in advance of his uh, death on the, on the cross. Now, you'd expect for a big king like Jesus, right, uh, to, to kind of come into the city with, with pomp and, and circumstance. You'd expect, uh, you'd expect it to be... Um, you know, impressive accommodations, you know, celebrated and welcomed by all of the leaders and powerful people of the day. Uh, that's what you'd expect, but we see something entirely uh, different when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So I'm going to read verses 28 to 40, and then we're going to spend a few minutes just, yeah, considering it and, uh, and considering how we can apply it to our lives. It reads, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. And untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. You shall say, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent away, uh, they found it just as it had been told to them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we pray uh, for these next few minutes as we read your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to quiet our hearts, help us to make the most of this time, help us to listen to you, help us to hear from you as you speak to us. Lord, we ask you to convict us of our sin and assure us of our salvation and make us uh, more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, so this is so he's going to Jerusalem, big city. Bethphage, Bethany are kind of like suburbs on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem, kind of near the, the Mount of, of Olives. It's where his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus uh, live, just east of Jerusalem. Uh, at the mount that is called Olivet, that's the, the, the you know, Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus is going to go and spend time with his father the, the night before uh, he dies in Luke 23, where he's going to you know, kind of pray the famous prayer, you know, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will uh, be done. That happens uh, in the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So one of two things is happening here. Jesus is either uh, kind of exercising his divine omnipotence, his, the, the fact that he knows everything, past, present, future, all places, all times. Right When, when God became a man in the, the person of Jesus, he didn't uh, lose any, um, he didn't lose any of his divinity. He didn't lose any of his omnipotence or his, his divine attributes. He just added to himself uh, human limitations, as, as it were. So the incarnation was not subtraction of divine attributes. It was addition of, human, of humanity. And so either Jesus was accessing this kind of divine omnipotence to know exactly what was going to happen when they walked into the village, or, um, you know, arrangements had been made, right? Like maybe they sent, they sent a scout on ahead to kind of touch base with someone that they knew and said, Hey, we're going to need this cult either, either way. Um, but as I was thinking about this, this, you know, this verse and trying to figure out what of those two things happened, cause I've read a lot of guys and a lot of guys said one, a lot of guys said the other, and a lot of them were insistent on one versus the other. And I kind of, you know, just realized the, the interesting, just the, 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 ins- the dogged insistence that a lot of folks have specifically around, you know, whether it's uh, miracles or uh, things that appear supernatural and miraculous or divine intervention. Um, you know, I mean, again, either one of these are possible with this verse. I'm not sure that either one is, uh, you know, either one calls into question the power or the authority of God or anything like that. But, yeah, again, the more I thought, you know, it's, it's just interesting how Christians and non-Christians understand and interact about miracles, right? A lot of Christians will say... They'll, they'll look at something that they understand to be supernatural, divine intervention. You know, uh, maybe someone is, is healed when they're sick or maybe something, you know, you pray for a tornado to, and it like goes around your house. Or, you know, things like that that appear uh, like, like, the, like a divine special intervention answer to prayer. And a lot of Christians will say, well, that's, that's a miracle, period. Like, leave it at that. No more discussion. Like, I don't want to talk about it because if... We talk about it, and, and, and if you can you know, find some way to explain what happened scientifically, then that will call my faith into question. A lot of non-Christians, particularly non-Christians who are hostile toward Christianity, uh, will 
you know, they like make it their life's mission to explain away everything that Christians understand to be miraculous or supernatural intervention, right? That's not, you know, that person wasn't miraculously healed. They just, you know, had their family come around them and, and, you know, their prayer didn't do anything, but what it did is like spike that guy's, I don't know, endorphins or whatever, and kind of cause his immune system to fight more effectively or whatever, right? Like the tornado didn't miss that house because you prayed for it. It, it, you know, was the low pressure system over here that caused it to do, you know, right. Everything's perfectly explainable. We don't need God to explain any of these things. And it's almost as if non-Christians think that if I can figure out a way to explain this seemingly miraculous event, then that means that uh, God doesn't exist or that he's not powerful. And some Christians are afraid that if I allow them to explain this seemingly miraculous event in natural terms, and that must mean that God doesn't exist or I kind of lose the right to believe in God. And again, as best as I could tell, you know, neither of those are true. This could, this could very easily have been something uh, non-sensational, like they just knew, you know, it was a buddy. Like it, was, it was a friend of a friend of one of the disciples that they knew it would be okay. Or it could have been supernatural, Jesus kind of accessing this divine uh, um, omnipotence and omniscience. Either way, not, not really... Not really sure. But what I can say is that just because we like come up with a scientific or medical explanation for something that appeared miraculous, it doesn't mean that God is any less sovereign or any, you know, or that we're any less indebted to God's mercy for those, you know, God works, God works mightily through a lot of things that we happen to be able to explain scientifically. Like rain, right? Like just because we can like diagram the what is it called? The water cycle that like, you know, it doesn't mean that like rain is any, like that we shouldn't pray to God when we need rain and that it's, and God is any less merciful when he gives rain to us that we need or penicillin, right? Or Wi-Fi, right? Like just because we can like explain these things doesn't mean that we are any less indebted to God's mercy or that it's, that it's silly to pray for God and ask for mercy regarding uh, them because it totally is. So, um, so Jesus says, if anyone asks you, uh, why you are untying this colt, you should say the Lord has need of it. Right? This word Lord, we've seen a lot in the Gospel of Luke. A lot is packed up, you know, tied into it. Uh, you know, this, the, the, Jesus identifying as the Lord, claiming to be the Lord, um, you know, is just, is pregnant with, with uh, connotations for religious leaders because he's kind of claiming to be the, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's claiming to be God himself. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it has a lot of connotations for the Romans because Caesar, you know, Caesar had a, a phrase that Caesar is Lord. And everyone that was kind of a citizen of Rome had to kind of say, there's like, you could believe in your God, but you have to say Caesar is Lord or else you're kind of an enemy of the, the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Lord and I have need of it, this is a, a, a weighty thing that he is, is saying. So they went away, they found it just as he had told him. As they were untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, just like they were instructed, the Lord has need of it. Now that's it. That's just all we hear about what would probably appear to them. I mean, again, barring the, barring the possibility that maybe they were a friend of a friend and kind of knew and had prearranged, you know, if, if they didn't know who Jesus was, then they would probably think that their colt is being stolen, right? These guys are like coming and untying their colt without asking permission. He says, the Lord has uh, need of it. So you'd think that they would respond, you know, that this, that this owner of this cult would respond with a little more resistance, a little more defensiveness, right? 
come out and confront them. Who are you? What do you want? Why should I give that to you? I'm not going to help you until I have all of the, all of the answers and then maybe I'll decide to help. And all they just say is, the Lord needs it. And then that's it. Which is kind of instructive, right? Right? Whatever, whatever the Lord needs is what I am willing to part with. I'm, I'm willing to practice generosity and hospitality for the sake of Jesus and what He has called me to and what He needs. Right? Giving generously, right? Whether it's to my local church or elsewhere, 10% or some other amount, that's a lot of money. I mean, if you, if you factor in 10% of all of your income over the course of your whole life, uh, for, for anyone, that would be a significant, I mean, even if you make minimum wage, that's a significant amount of money by the time you factor in decades worth of, of working and earning. It's costly. The Lord has need of it. Right? Welcoming a friend or a neighbor into your home, spending time with them, sharing a meal with them, listening to them, being present with them, encouraging them when they're hurting, praying with them. That's a lot of time and mo- money and emotional capital. It's costly. But the Lord has need of it. All kinds of non-monetary you know, acts of obedience that Jesus calls us to. Reconciling with others when they have, have offended us or hurt our feelings. Forgiving them. Deferring to, to counsel of others when it doesn't comport with our own preferences. Submitting to authority that God's placed in our life. Whether it's the, the government or the local church or parents or, or you know, whoever it is. Instead of being a lone ranger, kind of an autonomous individual Christian. These are costly things that the Lord has called us to but the Lord has need of it. I think we'd do well to adopt this same posture to say, regardless of what God has called me to, regardless of how much it costs me, regardless of how much I don't want to do it, regardless of how little information I have about why I should do it, I'm going to obey Jesus because He has said that He he needs it. Verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as He rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the road. This is how Jesus decides to make his uh, grandiose, triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. Right? You would expect maybe, uh, you know, an, an eloquent, uh, you know, an adorned stallion or a, a powerful war horse with an elaborate saddle. Jesus enters on a donkey. Jesus is the the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's lived for all of eternity in heaven, right? Streets paved with with gold, right? Surrounded by priceless, precious jewels. If there's anyone who deserves the trappings of wealth and luxury and excess, it's Jesus. And Jesus rides into town, right? This would be the equivalent of the President of the United States showing up to his inauguration at the National Mall, in a Hyundai, just like, you know, get it like, you know, the president, when he goes somewhere, he flies in Air Force One, his own personal 747 jet or whatever it is. And he gets out of that and he gets immediately into Marine One, his own personal, like, armored helicopter. And he gets out of that and he gets into his own personal motorcade, a dozen, you know, limousines that are basically tanks. And they kind of ride, ride around. He can, you know, and he's always flanked by dozens, if not hundreds, of Secret Service people and assistants to get him whatever. He, you, know, you, you would be surprised if the President of the United States showed up somewhere in a, a Chevy Cobalt, right? With like 
windows that you have to like roll with your hands or something like that. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing. Rides into town on a donkey with, and his, in a, his saddle on his donkey is homeless guys' jackets. That's, that, they put their jackets on this donkey, fashion it into saddle, and that's kind of what he, what he rides with. Never, never before has there been someone who had every right to assert himself and demand who instead willingly walked in humility. Philippians chapter 2 says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, I think we have this on the slide too, Jesse, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, riding in a donkey. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus' kingdom is not about earthly riches or physical domination. It's about something far more important than that. It's about something that's eternal. It's about God's love for his people. It's about God's people's love for him and their love for their neighbors. And Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey is a, is a great display of humility. But it's also, not only is it a great display of humility, it's also a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been written hundreds of, of years earlier. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem, right? You're going to be waiting for your king, your Messiah. You're going to be waiting for centuries and centuries and, and rejoice. You're going to behold that your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation when someone comes to you who is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was written by Zechariah 500 years prior to when Jesus was born. Prophecy about who Jesus would be, about what his ministry would look like, the circumstances surrounding his coming, and it's fulfilled explicitly in Luke chapter 19. And that prophecy is one of many. I spent a little bit of time just kind of looking into uh, a number of different prophecies this week. This isn't even all of them. This is just the ones I could fit on the screen. Um, But I'll I'll kind of uh, go through each of these real briefly and kind of sketch out a picture of who the Old Testament anticipated that the Messiah would be, what he would look like, what he would do. Tell me if it sounds familiar. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah would be born of a woman. 12.3, he would come from the nation of Abraham. 49.10, he would be born of the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 12 to 13, he would come from the line of David. Isaiah 7, 14, he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5, 2, he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 53, 9, he would live a perfect, sinless life. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, his family would flee to refu- flee as refugees to Egypt to save his life. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a man, John the Baptist, would come before him and prepare the way for him. Isaiah 9, 1-2, his ministry would begin in Galilee. Isaiah 35, 5-6, he'd perform miracles and heal people. Isaiah 11, chapter 10, his ministry would attract, attract Gentiles and welcome them into the fold of the people of God. Psalm 41, he would be betrayed by his close friend. Zechariah 11, that friend would collect 30 pieces of silver and later throw that silver into the temple as he's convicted and guilty because of his sin. Isaiah 50, he'd be beaten and tortured. Psalm 22, people would gamble for his clothing. 
Isaiah 53, he'd be hated and rejected, killed with sinners. Numbers 21, he'd be lifted up so that everyone who looks to him will live. Psalm 22, he'd be forsaken by God. Isaiah 53, he'd be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Psalm 31, everyone, his friends and everyone would abandon him and scatter. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, he'd be resurrected from the dead. Zechariah 12, the people who killed him would look on the one that they had pierced and mourn over their sin. Psalm 68, he would ascend to heaven and take his people with him. Jeremiah 31, he would then usher in a new covenant. Psalm 110, he would sit at the right hand of the Father. Isaiah 44, he would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. And then Daniel 7, he would establish a kingdom that would last forever and ever. That, you don't even, that is your under, that's your vision, your picture of who the Messiah is going to be and what he would do. You can have that much clarity, that much specificity without ever even opening the New Testament at all. That landscape of the life and person and work and ministry of the Messiah is found exclusively in the Old Testament. If you read it with eyes to see and with ears to hear and a heart that is looking for a Savior. Jump back into Luke 19, verse 37. As he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his people began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the entire multitude of disciples. So this is not just the twelve. The 12 apostles that kind of Jesus kept closest. It's not just the 72 disciples that were sent out to do ministry in Luke chapter 10. It's not just the women that were disciples of Jesus and kind of followed along and funded his ministry that we read about in Luke chapter 8. It's all of the people, right? All of the other people that are along for the ride, traveling from city to city with them, thousands and thousands presumably, all of the people that lived permanently in Jerusalem that were out to see what's going on, all of the people that were from elsewhere but had traveled into Jerusalem for Passover and they were also interested and they were out seeing what's going on. All of these people rejoicing, praising God, singing, exclaiming, We read in John that they're waving palm branches. It's where we get uh, the practice of Palm Sunday. And they're singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That reminds you of Luke chapter 2, what the angels in heaven were singing at the beginning of Jesus' life. It's because it was supposed to. They're kind of meant to function as bookends on either side of Jesus' life. The night he's born and a week before he dies, right? Uh, The night before he's born, they say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right? Whether it's the angels in heaven before Jesus is born, or whether it's his disciples now at the end of his life, the people who know him, the people who've interacted with him, the people who are aware of who Jesus is, are worshiping him and blessing his name and ascribing glory and honor to God. And they both mention peace, right? Uh, peace in heaven, peace on earth, uh, among those with whom his favor rests. The mention of peace at both times seems to imply that Jesus brings peace, Jesus gives peace, Jesus imparts peace, Jesus' followers can have peace. It also implies that apart from Jesus, there is no peace. Right? Apart from Jesus, 
Apart from Jesus, there's a God who is holy and hates sin. And there are people who are hopelessly, helplessly bound in sin, captive to sin. And they, there is no peace between those two respective parties. They're at, in, they're at war with one another. Right? God is opposed to sinners. Sinners are opposed to God. They're sworn enemies. They're arch rivals. But now through Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, payment for sin, there's peace. Sinners can be at peace with God. Sinners can have peace with God. They can be assured that God is no longer opposed to them like he once was. God is no longer uh, seeking to do harm to them like he once was. And the entire crowd is shouting and exclaiming and celebrating and worshiping because they now have peace with God through the person and work of Jesus. Of course, you know, spoiler alert, like we'll kind of, you know, get to it later uh, in the Gospel of Luke. But this is the same crowd that in just a few short days is going to be shouting, uh, to, to have Jesus crucified. Which is a sobering reminder, right? Uh, a sobering reminder that there is a difference between loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus and following Jesus like we're called to do and getting caught up in the heat of the moment. And, you know, being swayed by the emotions of a crowd and thereby deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're more committed to Jesus than we really are. It's possible to, it's possible to feel and think that you are on fire for the Lord because you're screaming and rejoicing and praising. But in reality, you're just, you know, having an emotional experience like you'd have at a U2 concert. Or, a, this, or going to the Super Bowl or going to a political rally or something like that, Right? So, so uh, God calls us to uh, be very careful to look at our life, look at our heart, not to mistake an emotional experience in a big crowd for real, true discipleship. Real, true discipleship perseveres, keeps going, keeps putting one foot in front of the other when the crowd dissipates, when the excitement kind of fades away. When the circus packs up, goes to another town, true discipleship continues to persevere through the days that are ordinary and mundane and regular and boring, going to work, watching the kids, making dinner, cutting grass, going to church. True discipleship perseveres through the ordinary and the regular and the the small things as it practices the ordinary means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, church attendance, church membership. There, there are a lot of Christians who are overly dependent on the next big emotional experience, the next big entertaining event, and the muscles that are required to walk with God faithfully on a regular Tuesday are underdeveloped or even atrophied. We have this tendency to kind of become enamored with big, impressive, flashy events and to overlook or even despise the normal and the regular and the ordinary. Just like this crowd. God is calling us to kind of fight against it and to to repent, to repent of it. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Which is 
you know, that's a bold statement. Right? It's a, that's a bold way to talk to the, the king of the universe who created you. Right? You, Jesus, you've got all these disciples. Uh, they're, they're cheering, throwing their cloaks in the road. They're celebrating. Right? right on cue are the, the Pharisees, religious, self-righteous, obsessed with rules. They're upset. Tell them to be quiet. Tell them that this is not the time or place. Tell them to, to you know, that they're being in, inappropriate. It's not, and they don't, it's not like, they don't ask, right? It's not, Jesus, I think that your disciples might be getting a little loud. Maybe you could kind of tell them to quiet down. It's a, it's a demand. It's an insistence. Teacher, rebuke your disciples and do it now. It's bold. It's presumptuous. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? The spirit of the Pharisees is one that says, we're smarter than everyone, we're better than everyone. What we think everyone should do is what they definitely should do. And they end up, you know, opposing Jesus himself to his face. If we're not careful, if we're not actively seeking to repent of sin in our lives, we'll adopt the same posture when it comes to Jesus. We'll inadvertently slip into this mode where we go from ignoring God to disobeying God to uh, actively opposing God and, and to presuming to stand in authority over God, when in reality God is in authority over us. And they do it like the reason that these Pharisees speak this way and have this demand for Jesus is because they have this preconceived kind of we, we have established in our mind what should happen? We have a plan. We, it's, it's, you know, we, have, we have ordered things the way that we want them. They make sense. They're clear. They're organized. The trains run on time. We have a system, right? Of how all, right? We know how we're supposed to act. The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, we know how you people are supposed to act, right? Uh, uh, you know, we know how God is supposed to act, right? We're on top. We have all the power. We have all the righteousness. We have all the authority. Everyone defers to us. Everyone bows their knee to us. Everyone kind of celebrates how great we are. You people beneath us, regular people, blue collar workers, right? You know your place. You better not step out of line. It goes for God too, right? God had better not step out of line. God had better do things the way that we want because, because, you know, God is luckier to have us as his followers than we are to have him as our God and our Savior. That's how highly we think of ourselves. That's how not highly we think of, of God. We don't need His mercy. We don't need anything from Him. God needs us. God is indebted to us. We are so awesome that God owes us the life that we want. The power and the authority and the autonomy that we want. Right? We, we the Pharisees, we run things. We keep things in order the way, right? the way that we want them. We're bigger than U.S. Steel. Right? It's kind of the way that they understood the, the system. Often what appears to some as disorder is just what God has ordered for the occasion. And often our zeal for keeping order is actually a mask that hides unbelief. It's a tendency to control by insisting on our own preferences and by forcing others to do so as well. It's pride 
and it's sin. So we literally have the epitome of humility in Jesus, the eternal, infinite God riding on a donkey, and we have the epitome of pride in these Pharisees, created beings presuming to stand in judgment over God and dictate terms to God and give orders to God. Because Jesus, time and time again in the Gospel of Luke, kind of functions like a lightning rod, functions like a a fork in the road where you where any presumption of neutrality is abolished and you choose whether you're for him or or against him right here's jesus presenting himself as king a humble king riding in a donkey but a king nonetheless coming into jerusalem and everyone is going to respond one of two ways you either celebrate him or you reject him. You worship him or you grumble. You rejoice or you rebuke. You align with Jesus and follow him or you oppose Jesus and you confront him. Jesus has a way of forcing people into uh, one response or another. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're with him or you're against him. You embrace him, trust him, worship him, or you resent him and reject him. Our culture loves the idea of, let me find this middle ground where I want all the benefits of identifying with someone or something, in this case Jesus, but I don't want any of the cost associated with it, right? Sure, I like Jesus, and I like french fries, you know, what's, you know. I, I, I don't worship the, I'm not out picketing. I don't worship the devil. I'm not out picketing churches. I'm not lobbying to get them shut down. I've got no problem with Jesus. I've got no problem with Christianity. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to attend, serve, become a member. I'm not going to open myself up to that kind of scrutiny and accountability, but I'm also not going to join the, you know, the, uh, the, the American atheist organ, like the local chapter of the American atheist organization. It's all good. I'm just, I'm neutral. And Jesus is very clear that neutrality is not an option. Mark 10, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. So there's no such thing as like, I've accepted Jesus as my savior, but not as my Lord or I believe in Jesus, but I don't uh, go to church, or I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really that big into it. It doesn't really affect my day-to-day life, or I'm spiritual, but not religious. I connect with God in my own way, on my own terms. According to Jesus, you're either with Him and you obey Him, or you're against Him. At which point it might prompt a lot of us to say, great. If that, given the fact that neutrality is not an option, which would have been my first choice, if I have to choose between being with Jesus or against Jesus, I choose with. Like I checked that box, census, put it in the mail, sent it back, done, no, no problem. I'm with Jesus rather than, than being against Jesus. The catch is, it's not as simple as deciding for yourself whether you're going to be with Jesus. or right? Being with Jesus or against Jesus is not something that you decide, that you kind of decide unilaterally. It's something that you discover by looking at your life and looking at your heart. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's no such thing as someone who loves Jesus and has identified with Jesus and chooses Jesus instead of uh, choosing to oppose Jesus, but does not keep the commandments of Jesus. 
So that's how you can know that you are a believer. That's how you can discover whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is by looking at your heart, looking at your life, and by inviting other believers to look at your heart and look at your life. So you can know that you are uh, among the people who have received God and worship Him instead of among the Pharisees who have rejected God and stood in judgment over Him is by looking at your life and by listening to other people when they are looking at your life. Which is why the church matters. That's why attending church matters. That's why church membership matters. Because that's how you invite other believers to look at your heart and look at your life. And it's how you can receive assurance from them that you are keeping God's commandments. Apart from the church and apart from relationships with other believers in the church and apart from church membership, there's no such thing as as assurance of salvation. Because you will be hopelessly at the mercy of your own perspective. which itself is hopelessly biased in your own favor, right? If you go for a walk in the woods or sit at the Grand Canyon and meditate, you might feel what you perceive to be assurance deep inside. You might have an emotional uh, experience, but real assurance of salvation, the way that God has prescribed for us to have it, is to enter a community of faith, to make a profession of faith, and then to have that community of faith affirm our profession, and then to live in relationship with them where they can observe our life as an objective third party. And they can say, as best as they can discern, you're either a Pharisee that's rejected God or you are part of the people of God that are worshiping Him. You're either for Jesus or against Him. Uh, you either love Him or you hate Him. And if you love Him, you will keep His commandments. And then in verse 40, Pharisees have just said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones that you see on the ground would, would cry out. Jesus is saying, I, I get that these, this crowd and their uh, enthusiasm is offending your Sensibilities. I get that to you they represent disorder and you have made an idol out of order. I get that they are calling me the Messiah and that's upsetting to you because you think that it's blasphemy. I get that, uh, that you um, want me to rebuke them and to silence them. But here's the reality of the situation. They can't stop. This crowd of people that has seen Jesus and has experienced Jesus and, and is kind of looking at the glory and the beauty of Jesus. These people who have trusted Jesus, been saved from their sin by Jesus, been reconciled to God by Jesus, have their eternity secured forever by Jesus. They've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit by Jesus. The people of God cannot stop worshiping Jesus. It's not... a it's not a matter of them not wanting to, they're not going to. It's simply, they can't, it's, it's an ontological impossibility for the people of God to not worship Jesus. Ontological means having to do with being or existence. And so, um, you know, on, uh, a, a circle is round, right? It's an ontological necessity. There's no such thing as a circle that's not round. 
They can't change. Roundness is part of what it means to be a circle. There's no such thing as a non-round circle. That's an ontological impossibility. Christians worship Jesus. Regardless of what they're told to do, regardless of, you know, of anything else. It's not a question. It's not up for debate. It doesn't change because worshiping Jesus is part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of the ontology of being a Christian. And so, so there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't worship Jesus. That's an ontological impossibility. Because Christians are people who see Jesus, trust Jesus, right? Behold the magnificent glory of Jesus. See what He has done for them. They look at the cross of Christ and it, it looms large in their, their vision. And when that person encounters something like that, when they experience something like Jesus in His humility, the sacrifice that He made for them, it's not just that God then wants them to worship Jesus. It's that there's no other possible response except to worship Jesus and to rejoice and to exult and to make much of him and to, to you know, exclaim how good and great he is. If that's not the response of a person's heart, then it's evidence that the glory of Christ was not truly beheld, right? Following Jesus is a privilege and, and worshiping Jesus is not... An option. It's an it's an involuntary response to someone who has seen and heard the gospel. So Jesus says, "I can't make them stop. It's not possible." And frankly, even if I could, then the literally the rocks that you see on the ground by the side of the road would would come to life, and they would worship me and sing and cry out in their place, right? The universe was created by Jesus. Everything in the universe was created by Jesus. Everything in the universe is being held together by Jesus. The universe exists to bring glory to Jesus and to make much of Jesus. We do that as human beings by trusting Jesus, worshiping him and obeying him. Or we, or we glorify Jesus as human beings by receiving his judgment and his wrath and thereby magnifying the justice and righteousness and holiness of God. But one way or the other, human beings exist to glorify Jesus and they will glorify Jesus. Rocks do the same thing. Rocks are faithful for the purpose that they were created for. Which, I guess, is just being a rock. sitting, Being hard, sitting on the side of... like that's what, that's what Jesus commanded rocks to do. That's what they do it. They are worshiping Jesus by being a rock. But if Jesus changed his mind and said, I want you to worship me with, with verbally, they would do it. And Jesus is saying, I can't stop these people from worshiping me because it's just part of who they are. And even if I did, then worship would come from somewhere. I, I am, Jesus is, so glorious, so magnificent, so awesome, so awe-inspiring that worship cannot help but come to me, to be ascribed to Jesus. That's how glorious He is. If these people were silent, the stones, would, the, the hard, dead, lifeless stones would become animated and would sing and pray and worship Jesus. Which, interestingly enough, is exactly what happens when people turn from their sin, trust in Christ, and worship Him and, and walk with Him. The Bible portrays the human heart in its natural state apart from the grace of God as hard, 
as hard as a rock. Deuteronomy 15, don't harden your heart against your poor brother. 1 Samuel 6, don't harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did. 2 Chronicles 36, Nebuchadnezzar hardened his heart against the God of Israel. Zechariah 7, the people of God made their hearts as hard as diamonds, lest they should hear the word of the Lord. The natural state of humanity by virtue of sin and selfishness is to have a heart that is hardened against the Lord. But listen to how Ezekiel chapter 36 describes the moment of salvation when God saves his people. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from the idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll pour out my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. When Jesus saves a sinner, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and regenerates them. He takes their hard heart of stone and replaces it with a soft heart that loves God. And from that moment they cannot from that moment on they cannot do anything but worship God. They worship God when they're at church singing, hearing the Bible preached. They worship God when they're driving home. And they don't get road rage when they, you know, otherwise could have. They worship God when they're at work and they work diligently and serve their employer. They worship God when they're with their family and they love their kids and they're patient with them, right? The people of God are people who have been changed by the gospel, by Christ's death and resurrection and grace, and they respond by worshiping Jesus with everything that they are and everything that they do. That what was formerly a heart of stone uh, turns and cries out and worships Jesus. Recognizes him as its long-awaited Savior, Messiah, and King, and responds by saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for coming among us into our midst for living a perfect life in our place, and for dying a sacrificial death in our place. Lord, we thank you that um, for, for presenting yourself to us as our long-awaited Savior and Messiah and King. Lord, we thank you for fulfilling all of the prophecies that we read in the Old Testament. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you, to recognize you as our King and Savior, and then to respond to you appropriately by turning from our sin, worshiping you as our great God and Savior. We love you. We trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.